Welcome to the Holy Shift Podcast. These podcasts are conversations about church, leadership, and culture. I'm Scott Neal, your host. On this episode, we have pastor, mentor, and author of some of my favorite books, including Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, Radical Forgiveness, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Postcards from Babylon, and his newest and possibly his best, When Everything's on Fire. He is founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, along with his wife, Perry. He has served as lead pastor there for over 40 years years. I could go on and on, but I want to get to the interview today. So I'm talking with one of my heroes today. It's an honor to welcome Pastor Brian Zahn. Welcome, Brian. Well, thank you, Scott. That was a very kind introduction, other than it made me sound old. I mean, 40 years? That's true. Yeah, Yeah, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary of our church, and so (laughs) how about that? Yeah, that's unbelievable. In fact, I hadn't thought through how long you had been at Word of Life Church until I was preparing for our conversation, 41 years. My The reason I was kind of you know blown away by that is my wife, Lana, and I just celebrated 20 years a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago here at Forest Park, and I was thinking that was a long time, and then I was calculating that how long, long you had time. been there, 41 years. That's uh, that's amazing. I, my, my, my first question on that is, did you have a sense that you would be at that location for so long? When you when you went there, did you just kind of look at it as uh, no. passing through, or did you see yourself? Being <laughs> well, there I mean, that long? it's I'm I'm in my hometown. I'm <laughs> I was born and raised oh, here, okay. and uh, it was an outgrowth of the Jesus movement that right. Word of Life came into being. And my original commitment, though, there were some pastors from St. Louis that that ordained me and set me in as the pastor of this church. And I think if I remember right. My original commitment was for one year, <laughs> and we and Perry and I really thought that at the end of one year we were going to go to Mexico uh, as okay. missionaries. So the one years turned into forty years. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you ever? Uh, I'm sure you have at times considered recently, maybe kind of you know moving on from the the daily grind and weekly grind of preaching every week and pastoring and maybe just focus on writing or traveling and speaking and sharing your story? You know, I could do that. I mean, I'm at the stage of life, I suppose, where that would make sense. I'm 62. But no, I really haven't. Uh, I mean, we have a good church. We have a good team. And so I don't have to do a lot of stuff that a lot of pastors would need to do to stay in a pastoral vocation. So I have a whole team of people helping me do that. And so I think it's, just, you know, as long as I'm living here and I, it just makes sense for me to at least be present as the primary preacher on Sunday mornings. I think everybody's happy with that. So sure. um, there is a sense in which, you know, the, the full-time author gig is appealing. Although, you know, I've written 10 books in 12 years. So I'm already living as a full-time author right. in one That's sense, true. but, yeah. but it, it, it would take another thing off my plate. But no, I'm, I'm actually not inclined towards that. I, I still yeah. love the, the weekly discipline of preaching and all of that. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, I imagine you're a different person and you, you pastor a different church than you did four decades ago. Um, in fact, in your wonderful book, Water to Wine, you, you tell the story of your dismantling and reassembling your faith. 
And right. I think that's actually kind of what drew me into you as I was going through some somewhat similar of a kind of an emotional storm. And I had been here for a number of years and, you know, I'd grown up in the church and kind of grew up in the evangelical and uh, charismatic Pentecostal movement and those things. And, and I began to just struggle with some things and came across your material and read Water to Wine. And you, you define it in when everything's on fire, kind of as a second reading of scripture, a second reading of the, the words of Christ. Right. So if, if you will, please, Brian, I know there are some people who are listening and they're unfamiliar with your journey. They're unfamiliar with kind of who you are. And I would love for you to take just a, just a few moments and, and kind of give us a little background on what happened to you and how it changed how you pastor and lead today and then what eventually led you to write Water to Wine. Mm. Well, okay. Um, I've already alluded to the fact that that I come from the Jesus movement, really. That's, you know, in the 70s. Yeah. And um, so uh, Word of Life has its roots in the G. It started off as a coffee house during the Jesus mm. music scene. And so it was like a music venue that I was running in my teens that de facto turned into a church. And then I was set in as the pastor. And and so the Jesus movement, which I think upon fondly, um, that led us to the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. You know, the early days, though, were a wonderful experience of just the life of the Spirit. So our church was small for the first seven years, and then it began to grow, and it grew quite astoundingly, actually. Um, and so I think you'll understand, and I hope many of our listeners will understand, that, that even though we were a non-denominational charismatic church, that doesn't mean you're disconnected from a movement. And the movement just sort of led us from Jesus movement, charismatic movement, that goes to word of faith, that involves eventually religious right and all of that sort of stuff. So that when I was entering my 40s, I began to have this growing sense of unease. I thought, how did I get here? I started off as this radical Jesus freak, and now I just feel like I'm a Republican with a Jesus fish on his <laughs> SUV. And I thought, you know, I, I feel it felt too Americanized, too compromised to a particular political, social culture within America in the early 2000s. And, and I didn't really know what to do about it. I, I just, I wasn't having a crisis of faith regarding my faith in Jesus. I was having a crisis of faith regarding the kind of Christianity I knew. I just felt like the, the Jesus who captured my heart when I was a teenager deserved a better Christianity than I knew. It, it, was, it was too compromised too political, too consumerist, too materialist, all of that sort of thing, um, too militarized, all, all, everything that I understood was not really part of the original Jesus movement. I mean, not the one in the 1970s, but the one in the AD 70s. And yeah. so I, I didn't really know what to do other than I, I began to read as early as possible. What I mean by that I knew the New Testament, but I began to read Church Fathers. And then eventually, through a series of events, I kind of found my, I got caught up. And I was, I was reading what I would consider the best of Christian theology across the entire ecumenical spectrum. So I'm reading Orthodox theologians and Catholic and Anglican and mainline Protestant and Anabaptist, all of these that I'd 
you know, assiduously ignored all of my life because I just wasn't in that world. And so by the time I was 45, this would have been 2004, uh, my theology was, was changing. That could be one word. A better word might be maturing, growing, developing, uh, coming into full flower. And I was leaving behind, well, watch this. I was leaving behind my eschatology. Ah, rimshot, <laughs> get it? <laughs> and so that stuff needed to be left behind. And yeah. I was, so certain aspects of my theology uh, were being transformed. This shows up, of course, in my preaching. I, I, remember, I remember the Sunday in August of 2004 when I announced to my church that I was packing my bags from the charismatic movement and moving on. Now, I said it with enough aplomb and rhetorical skill that the congregation applauded. <laughs> but um, when I actually did it, yeah. it, it wasn't as popular. And so over the next several years, we probably lost a thousand people over various issues. But the main issue was when I began to critique the church's easy, cozy alliance with the American empire. Uh, when, when I saw that there was that there was this conflation of American agenda and uh, Christian theology and agenda, I, I as I critique that, that's when we lost a lot of people. It was very painful. It was a very painful time. These were people we'd done life with, that we'd led to the Lord, that we'd baptized, that we'd married, that we'd baptized their kids and married their kids, and yet they're leaving. And so... That was painful. That's the one thing in the book, Water to Wine, which I think was published in, I don't know, it's 2015, 2016, 2014, I don't know, somewhere in that time yep. frame. Yep. Uh, the, the one thing in that book that as I look at it today that, I, that I'm not completely forthcoming about is how painful it was. Now, I do talk mm. about it. In fact, I, I think I make it clear that it was a very painful time, but it was actually worse than I was letting on because at the time of that writing, I, I wasn't healed yet. And the pain was still so present that I didn't want to dwell on it. Uh, I can honestly say that walking our first Camino, we may have to explain what that means to people, but walking the Camino de Santiago for our first time in 2016, that healed our soul. So, so you know, you don't have to feel bad for me. I'm, I'm well, yeah. <laughs> healthy, happy, things, life is good. Yeah. Uh, so right. you're in one sense, yeah, I've pastored one congregation, one church, but if you pastor one church for 40 years, you, in effect, pastor many churches. <laughs> yeah, so and, true. And that's, that's been my experience. And so that story is set forth in one form or another in the book Water to Wine. And yeah, then that, well, that actually is, ties into When Everything's on Fire because, right. well, I'll let you make, you see how that works. No, I just, yeah, absolutely I do. And, and it is just a wonderful book, Water to Wine. In fact, most of the time, if I introduce someone to you, I try to go, hey, just just go get Water to Wine and 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 read it and just kind of get a heart, you know, a picture of Brian's heart and some of the journey that he's walked through. And I'm glad you mentioned about the the pain that you walk through by watching people walk away, because I, I think, you know, I, I certainly can't speak for all people, but 
you know, if we hear stories like this, we think maybe the, the pastor who went through this radical transformation or, you know, had this experience with Christ and his theology changed. He just had this boldness and he just stood up and preached and people left and he, oh, well, you know, oh, well, they're not on the team and we're just going to keep marching forward. But that isn't that isn't the reality. Just like you said, no. people that you've loved and served and baptized and they walk away. I, I imagine and it may not be true for you, so I certainly don't want to imply it is. But I know for me, I've, I've had some of that at a much smaller scale here at Forest Park. And, you know, I, there were times that I just wondered, you know, am I, am I wrong here? You know, am I, am I just, am I missing yeah. something here? You just kind of, you know, struggle through that process of watching people you've loved just leave and it, it hurts. Well, my experience was this. Um, when I began to discover the good stuff, and I tell the story in the book, but I just, I just want, yeah. I, think I want to, I think I'm going to tell it. So I'm reading a lot of church fathers and a lot of that sort of thing, and that's good. But I knew I needed something more contemporary. But I was just embarrassingly ignorant of what I call the good stuff. I, I just, if you don't know, you don't know. And yeah. one day, and this is all happening in 2004. Perry and I to this day call it the year that everything happened. <laughs> In in 2004, I prayed one day. Here I'm here in my house, and I I was here, and I, and I said I said God, show me what to read, show me what to read. And there was a lot implied in that. It's a very simple prayer, but I actually there was a lot meant in that. A few minutes later, Perry, my wife, walks in a room. She has no idea what I've just prayed. She walks up to me and hands me a book and says, "Here." I think you should read this. <laughs> now, it gets even stranger, though. Uh, Perry had not read this book. Hmm. It gets stranger. Perry found this book in our house, and I didn't buy it. She didn't buy it. To this day, we don't know how it got in our house, but it did. And I did read that book, and it was like a door being kicked open in my mind. The book, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Yep. And what happened is just one thing led to another. And I would actually go on, I would binge read. The, the amount that I read in 2004, 5, 6, 7, I look back on it and I'm impressed. I go, I, it's hard to believe someone <laughs> could read that much theology in that shorter time. But it was, it was yeah. the seminary I never had. Yeah. Kind of deluxe, because I was reading hours yeah. of academic theology every night and loving it. It was never work to me. Hmm. It was... I was thrilled. I'd struck gold and couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. And that was, that was, and I would, what I would do is I would almost exhaust an author. Okay. So I found early on, I found N.T. Wright and read all of his stuff that he'd written up to that point. I read all of David Bentley Hart stuff. I read almost all of Brueggemann. Now Brueggemann has like about 80 books. So there's a lot there. Um, and, 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 uh, I was just emailing with Walter, uh, yesterday. He's, become a mm. friend and he's 88 years old and so wonderful what, what a what a what a wonderful man of God but yeah. so it was it was one of the most thrilling periods of my life and there was deep joy in it and Perry was with me I mean she was I wasn't bringing her along she was just right there we were together and honestly I don't know how this will sound to you but there was never actually any moment where I doubted that I was making true discoveries and was on the right path. Yeah. I never doubted that. What I doubted was whether following this path, whether Word of Life Church 
the church that I, you know, that represents my life's work mm -hmm. uh, would mm -hmm. remain viable? You know, would we just mm -hmm. run it into the ground? And there was a lot of fear and anxiety about that. Now, eventually things stabilized and then it began to come back and, and we're in a good season now. Uh, well, how, so let me we, ask we you, how did your through. leaders, how did your leaders, your, you know, your, your council, your the, board, those around you? Most of the leadership you. team, see, I tell this story that actually predates 2004. It, it, it happened during this time when I was reading Church Fathers. And it was, I, it's one of those things that I'll just always remember, June 4th, 2000. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was reading Augustine's Confessions. And I was sitting on the front step of my house, and I was just moved. I mean, Augustine isn't my favorite church father, but Confessions is more of his memoir. And he's telling his story, and I was moved by the devotion of his life to Christ. And, and I prayed, and I said, God, inasmuch as I can mean anything in a single moment, I mean this. I want to give the rest of my life to knowing you as you are revealed in Christ. And I mean, I pray that from the very depth of my being. And then a strange thing happened. It was kind of a mystical experience where, where I, I, these words came up into my spirit that I, I had to say them out loud. I wanted to say, come with me. Come with me. Come with me and you won't get cheated. Come with me. Hmm. And so I actually started trying to talk about that and preach some stuff from that. You know, if you go way back in the archives, you'll find sermons called Come With Me. But the point is, I actually didn't know where we were going. I didn't know what it right. meant. It took till about 2004 to actually, oh, here's the path. Here's what we're going to walk. Yeah. Well, one of the things I did during that time, we have staff meetings on Tuesday. I began to take about 90 minutes, you know, so our staff meetings are, were quite long. You know, they were hours long. But I would take the first 90 minutes and just teach, and we would discuss. Or maybe we'd study a book together. And really, the leadership pretty much all came with me. It was some of the congregation that just, and I understand. I mean, I, I don't say this with any judgment. Word of Life did profoundly change. We were kind of just a typical, you know, charismatic church, kind of a religious right, consumerist, word of faith, charismatic church. And if that's what you signed up for, and then the church begins to go in a new direction now, a direction that I believe is far better, far richer, far truer to the historic faith, but it's not what it once was. And so yeah. I had to accept the fact that people were going to leave. Now, I didn't like being maligned as that. People would say things like, oh, uh, you know, Pastor Brian's gone liberal, which didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but it, that that wasn't an accurate description of what was happening. I mean really paying attention to the church fathers is is not something I would necessarily re describe as liberal. Right. <laughs> it's conservative in the truest sense of the word, you know, if anything. Or they would say that he's backslidden, which that one hurt mm. because I just felt like, if anything, I'm front sliding. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like I'm making better progress in right. following Jesus and truly understanding. I mean, my prayer was being answered. I wanted to know God is revealed in Christ. So, but that's, you know, if you're going to dare to make that kind of attempt at transitioning yeah. a church, you're going to, you have signed up to be misunderstood and then often maligned. That is so true. And so yeah. you're going to have to have the, the art of forgiveness uh, well established in your life or you'll become bitter. And so yeah. I was well, able to I, let I love people that story. go. 
yeah, yeah I, I was able to story. let people and go gro- graciously. So, yeah, well, that, that's, that's great, and I, I'm sure it did. Yeah, it, it it always does, especially if you're a true pastor and you really love people. Yeah. You know, it, it hurts. But I just want to encourage anybody uh, who's listening who maybe just begin to experience your own kind of questions, and you're wondering if if whether or not you know the theology you hold to is as, is as sound or as, as good stuff as Brian mentions, grab his book. If you haven't read it yet, water to wine. And one other question, Brian, before we move into your latest book, would you recommend, I mean, I'm sure you would, but maybe you have another one or two books for someone who wants to kind of kick the door open and start moving in that direction. A divine conspiracy obviously is a wonderful book to begin that journey. Do you have maybe another one or something that you would encourage someone to pick up? And I read? have other ones, but they tend, I tend yeah. to base them on actually knowing something about the person okay. and what they're asking. Uh, yeah. But books that I will often recommend are uh, uh, surprised by hope by N.T. Wright Mm-hmm. And the prophetic imagination by Walter Brueggemann. Those are two that I regularly Great. recommend. Wonderful. All right. Well, pick those books up. Those of you listening, and and uh, read them, and go along on this journey. Well, Brian, you um, you you, you wrote a book recently that uh, I just absolutely loved. I mean, it is just outstanding, and it's called When Everything's on Fire. And I, I highly recommend. I know I've, I've said this already several times, but Please pick the book up. I, th- I think it would be an excellent book study uh, for a group of people to get together. In fact, that's what I'm looking forward to doing is getting a group of people here at our, our church together and just kind of work our way through the book. Uh, it, it's 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 wonderful. And in, in the book, Brian, just to kind of give you a, those of you, the audience, to kind of give you an overview of this. Brian, he, he wades into the murky waters of, of deconstruction. That's kind of the the, the term that is being thrown around a lot today and, and provides not only comfort, for those who are waist deep in it themselves, but light and hope and options on how to get through it. And Brian, you, you come alongside those who are fighting against, you know, the current of tradition and religious beliefs and even family. And instead of preaching, I didn't feel that the book was preachy at all. You, yeah. you just provide wisdom and you provide hope. And I loved it. And I just thought you did a great job with it. And you, you brought a sense of of um, of love and gentleness and understanding into this conversation today, I, I hear a lot of pastors who are just maligning those who are going through what you know has been coined deconstruction and and saying that they never had a true faith or you you you've heard all that stuff before. Right. You don't do that in this book. So the, if you're struggling with your faith right now, wondering about questions of things, excellent book to walk through. In fact, I, I want to jump into it because you you begin the first chapter with this line, once upon a time, we all believed in God. I think that is a perfect opening because that is no longer true, is it, Brian? Why, why, yeah, what is I mean, going on? Okay, well, let's... I wrote this book because there is a real phenomenon of the loss of faith that is occurring. It is occurring within a particular time. It's occurring in what we might describe as late modernity. Thinking of modernity beginning around the same time as the age of the Enlightenment, the rise of empiricism, Rene Descartes, 1634, the publication of Discourse and Method, things like that. But it's, 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 it's come of age now. And to be angry at p- modern people for losing their faith is like a little bit like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. <laughs> I mean, yep. something happened 
there, there really something happened in 14th century Europe that caused you know somewhere between a third and a half of the population to perish in a disease. And something genuine has happened that imperils the faith of millions of Western Christians. Yelling at them, mocking them, telling them that, you know, I don't think there's anyone that wakes up one morning and says, you know, I think I'll just have a crisis of faith for the fun of it. <laughs> I don't think it. And, and I was able to write, I think, from a place of humility and gentleness because I had my own experience. Now, mm. I didn't call it deconstruction for a couple of reasons. One, that wasn't the term in use at that time in 2004. Um, right. And also because I'd read enough philosophy that I understood, you know, where it comes from. It comes from Jacques Derrida, where he is the founder of deconstruction theory, which is an approach to texts. And it's the deconstruction of the text to find what hidden agendas lurk within the text, that sort of thing. Uh, but, I mean, it is the term that's used, so I'll use it and I'll engage with it. I, it's not my favorite term because it, it deconstruction if you're not understanding in, in its philosophical origins, it sounds a little violent. It sounds a little too much like destruction. And I, I want to say, well, yeah, I understand that questions that challenge the legitimacy of Christian faith are arising at rapid pace in the minds of millions. It's happening. I know this as I know this anecdotally as a pastor. I know this also just by being one who is observant of the wider culture. I know this as one who has read enough philosophy to understand something of the time in which we are living and passing through that that secularism is a real thing. Fighting it as some sort of culture war enemy is foolish, wrongheaded, and won't help a bit. Um, but it is a it is a period of time we're in, and so I wanted to help people who understand that their faith actually is precious, but they can't deny the doubts they're facing, the questions that are rising in their mind. Scott, the, the, uh, the book, because I mentioned it earlier, I mentioned how Perry and I walked the Camino de Santiago mm -hmm. uh, in 2016 for the first time, and it healed our souls. I mean, it, uh, that's not hyperbole. It healed our souls. Oh. And what that is, is it's an ancient... Uh, pilgrim path that the most famous route for modern people begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and it crosses the Pyrenees and 500 miles later arrives in Santiago de Compostela, Spain. It's a fascinating story about how it revived. I mean, where does it start? Well, I mean, in medieval times, it started from your front door, wherever you happen to live, and then you would find your way to Santiago. But because Santiago is very far west, almost almost to the coast of Spain, in northern Spain, the, there became this standard route that a lot of people would eventually be funneled into if they're coming from anywhere, you know, east of Santiago, which almost everyone was. And so it, it was very popular, and then it kind of went away, and then it began to have a resurgence in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now a quarter of a million people a year are walking it. So Perry and I walked this in 2016, and it, it, was, it healed our souls. We walked the Portuguese route of it in 2017, and then in 2019 we were back uh, to walk the big 500-mile one again and because we just love this now. I mean, it's just so good for us. I think I, I tell people my pilgrim self is my best self. It's just, just to be reduced to the blessed simplicity of everything you need you carry on your back, and you yeah. never move faster than foot speed. And for 40 days, your life is simply a pilgrimage westward. That's all you do. 
and you can slip into a real good contemplative state. You have, you know, you're walking for hours every day, lots of time to pray and just to think and meditate. And of course, you're walking past churches all the time because churches grew up along the Camino and uh, hostels that would house pilgrims that were religious in nature. And they're still there. Um, not all of the churches are active, but most of them are still alive because they're on the Camino. And so the Camino can serve a little bit like something like a time machine. You, you become aware of an earlier epoch when faith was at the center of society. Now, I'm not overly romantic about the medieval period. I know there's superstition. I know there was abuse of power in the, in the form of the church. and all. Of, I know all of that. But I also know that people were not struggling with the same kinds of questions regarding faith that modern people do. And so we live in a different time, and I was aware of that. And I didn't want to scold anybody. <laughs> what would be that? There's nothing pastoral or helpful or intelligent about that. And I thought, well, if someone is saying, you know, I've been, I'm troubled by the doctrine of hell, you know, or, or how that works, or it could be anything, you know. I I I I feel like I might be on the verge of losing my faith, Christian faith. And I was thinking about this. Those people, what would I say to them? How would I talk to them? Maybe if if they could walk with me for two days, you know, for twelve hours or so, because you usually walk about five or six hours a day. If if I could just walk with them listen to them, and then share what it is that was on my heart. Uh, I was thinking like that. And about yeah. 200 miles into this very long pilgrimage, we were staying in uh, Castro Jaris, lovely hilltop village in northern Spain there. We'd walked our 15 miles or whatever, and I was sitting on this terrace outside our lodging. And I, I don't know exactly why this phrase came to me, but, but I, I wrote in my had a little notebook, because you don't carry much, you know, you don't carry big heavy books or anything, but I had this little thin paperback notebook, and I wrote in there, I wrote at the top, when everything's on fire. Hmm. And then I, I put, I wrote down 11 chapters. And I, I, I want to talk about this, I want to talk about this, I want to address this. And it was really conceived right there and stayed very true to that original impulse, that original inspiration. Yeah. Uh, so it was from the very beginning, it was called When Everything's on Fire. I didn't really start writing, though, until January. So finished the Camino, got back, busy with holidays and all that. So I really started probably about mid-January to actually write the book. And then, of course, by March... <laughs> Everything was on fire. <laughs> I'd already right. called it when everything was on fire, but then everything was on fire. And so that's yeah. that's a little that's the genesis of the book. Yeah. And, and, well, and, and it, it, answering your question as to why I wrote it, I wrote it, I think, because I am a pastor, and I I yeah. wanted a a a kind pastor, hopefully a wise pastor, to assist people rather than some guy that's just angry because you know people are leaving his church because their faith right. fell apart. Right. Well, one of the reasons I just I loved it. I, I wish I would have had something like this with me about ten or twelve years ago when I kind of went through my own my own journey. It, it felt it felt very pastoral. It felt very uh, gentle. Uh, there were times 
and you know in the book that you you push us you you know you challenge us to think deeper to think broader but never in a way of condemning or making you feel as if you know somehow your faith isn't genuine or it never was true because my experience and those that I've spoken with uh, in our church and, and and even outside of our church who are going through their own deconstruction experience it's very painful Right. It, it, you feel as if your world is coming apart. I mean, yes. I think there's very appropriately titled when everything's on fire. That's how it feels. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are just, you know, jumping on the bandwagon because it's just kind of popular today and a lot of things are being talked about. But if you truly are walking through your own deconstruction experience, you feel as if the very ground on which you've been standing is unraveling. And you do not know what's going to happen next. You don't know where you're going to land. You don't know what your purpose in the universe is going to be. You don't know how you're going to base, you know, your your tomorrow, your your morality. I mean, on and on it goes. And especially if you are in ministry or you are a religious leader of any sort. And, and what has literally kind of defined who you are is now coming unwound. And you're just, you know, you're coming apart on the inside trying to grab a hold of something. I think this book will be a, a lifesaver, almost throwing it out to someone and going, hey, look, here's something that you can grab a hold of and float on for a while and think a little bit, you know, deeper. And I want to be a friend to you in the process. So you did great with that, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. Well, I, I want to jump in a little bit of some of the some of the depth of this because I, I especially not you know I'm a, maybe a little different than some people, but I especially enjoyed how you drew parallels and distinctions between Nietzsche and, and Kierkegaard. I thought that was a great chapter and just how you you showed that you know both of these guys challenged the Christianity of their day. Nietzsche emerged a devout atheist, and Kierkegaard committed still committed to Christ and they're in, you know, in his own way. And, and here's why you conclude that. You say Kierkegaard was able to make the vital distinction between a failed Christendom and a triumphant Christ. And I personally think questioning and pushing and testing and asking questions is healthy. Yet I find a lot of Christians, even pastors, even some of my own colleagues and religious leaders fearful and, and th that people are questioning, that they're wondering about the atonement, or they're wondering about hell, mm -hmm. or the place that Scripture ought to have in our life, and whether or not it's the final authority, and all these different things. Why do you think there is such a fear, Brian, among pastors and spiritual leaders about what their congregants are asking and wondering about today? Well, I mean, the fear aspect probably comes from anxiety over loss of control. Um, mm. But that doesn't have to be that way. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you don't have to be that way. Let, let me talk a little bit about, about Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, I just want, you know, I don't say it in the book. I mean, I kind of try to hint at it, but, I, but I, wanted, I want people to be clear that I didn't just like Google and read a Wikipedia article on Nietzsche for <laughs> this book. Yeah. I've been reading Nietzsche for a very long time, quite seriously, quite deeply, um, for a long time. And I like Nietzsche. In fact, I'm friends with probably the leading Nietzsche scholar in America, a guy mm -hmm. named Clancy Martin, head of the uh, philosophy department at University of Missouri in Kansas City. So, I mean, so I've engaged very seriously and very deeply, and I like Nietzsche. Now, I disagree with him, but on, on a lot, although I probably agree with him on more. I, it's his conclusions <laughs> that I disagree with and some of his right. ideas about probably the solution. But I like him, and I like him for a couple of reasons. One, he's such a, just such a good writer. He's a very creative, engaging writer, and I have a certain 
soft spot in my heart for all PKs. <laughs> you know, he was a pastor's kid, yep. which may explain yep. certain things. But Nietzsche, Nietzsche is like, well, the, the, the first really creative theologian, to use that term, in the history of the church probably is Origen in the second century. And Origen is, what propelled Origen's thinking in its best forms is his engagement with Celsus, who was a virulent pagan critic of Christianity. And it forced Origen to think. Well, I kind of, what, what Celsus was to Origen, Nietzsche is to modern Christian thinkers. You can't just ignore him. You have to engage with him. And here's what Nietzsche does. Uh, early in the book, I, I relate the parable of the madman, which he published, yeah. I think, in 1882 or something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head. But the parable of the madman, it goes basically like this. A man shows up in a village in Europe on a bright, sunny morning, holding aloft a lantern on a bright sunny morning, holding a lantern and crying, where is God? Where is God? I can't find God anywhere. Where's God? And the villagers gather around and laugh at the absurdity of this, a man holding a lantern on a bright sunny morning saying, I can't find God. They gather around him, they're laughing, and he jumps into their midst and says, I'll tell you where God is. God is dead and we have killed him. And they begin to laugh and even more. And the madman says, oh, I see I've come too early. But my time is not yet, but it is coming. And then he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. All right, what's Nietzsche doing here? Nietzsche is not simply making an argument for atheism. I mean, he is an atheist, but that's not his point at all. His point is he has recognized that Western society has already moved on without God. That we have found a way to organize our lives with at best God at the periphery, but no longer the organizing center of Western society. But in, in perceiving this, Nietzsche is the madman who says God is dead and we have killed him. He is saying that, that the process of thought that begins with the Enlightenment and is coming into full flower in his age in the late 1800s, has eradicated God from the center of society. But he also recognized most people don't know that yet. And he says, oh, I see I've come too early. But my time, it's coming. Now, people that don't really know Nietzsche, they'll, sometimes he gets tagged with being a nihilist. He is not a nihilist. This would, this would mortally offend him. Uh, this was his great fear. So we have the phenomenon of what are, what are known today as the new atheists, right? So this would be Hitchens and Dennett and Harris and Dawkins and people like that who are a bit cavalier and often rather smug. And Nietzsche was never that way. Nietzsche, he believed it was time for the human race to move on without God, but he did it with much fear and trepidation. And he would say things like, we have unchained the earth from its sun. Uh, we are floating through a vast nothing. There's no longer any horizon. How can we tell what's up, what's down? And so his fear was that if, if 
society did move on without God, that there would be nothing less left but the abyss of nihilism. That is basically that life has no meaning, that history has no meaning. There's no story to be told, and at best you can just kind of come up with a little bit of happiness here or there, but it's meaningless. His hope was for the ubermensch, the overman, the superman, with a rise to the will to greatness, the will to power, and that uh, somehow, human, because he was critical of Christianity uh, and its emphasis on love, he said, he said that's, that's slave morality. It's just a way for the weak to manipulate the strong. And he said, we need to cast off the shackles of Christian slave morality and have the will to dominate, the will to power. Well, there was a group that read Nietzsche a yep. few generations later and took him seriously, and unfortunately that was the Nazis. And they took his yep. books, uh, Twilight of the Idols and Genesis of Morals and uh, Antichrist and the Gay Science and others, and made them their canonical texts and, and tried to be... So it turns out the problem is that the Superman turns out to be a Nazi. And this is where this is where I would be a little rough on Nietzsche. I said I like him. I fa I fantasize in the first part of the book about having lunch with him in Basel. You know, right. I have to get him right. caught up yeah. on the on the twentieth century and tell him, you know, yeah, we got your Ubermensch, but man, it was not a good experience. <laughs> and and this is where I might be a little hard on Nietzsche. I said, Nietzsche, where did you did you think it was going to lead this this dark fascination with a violent will to power? Did you think it was going to lead to something other? than death camps and a continent in ruins. So, so Nietzsche's hope did not materialize, but his fear may. His fear was that instead of the Ubermensch, we would get what he called the last man or the last men. For Nietzsche, that is the final stage of a failed human development. And the last men are incurious, entertainment, addled couch potatoes who don't have any higher aspiration than a bit of prosaic happiness. And I think yeah. he's, you know, this, this is, so we're, we're, we're in this tension between Christ or what? Christ or what? I don't quote it in the book, but one of Nietzsche's laments is 2,000 years and no new God. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I just want to say, Nietzsche, no new God is coming. This is the accomplishment of Christ. He has swept the field clean of all rival gods. So it isn't, once Jesus shows up, this is I don't say it this bluntly in the book, yeah. but it basically becomes Christ or nothing. And by yeah. nothing, I mean kind of the abyss of nihilism. As the book in that chapter goes on, I think, well, okay, I'm not the one to have, who am I to have lunch with Nietzsche? Who needs <laughs> to have lunch with Nietzsche is Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, yeah. who was just a little bit ahead of him. Kierkegaard clearly would, well, Kierkegaard would never have heard of Nietzsche. Uh, uh, Kierkegaard had died before Nietzsche began his academic career. Nietzsche, it seems, heard had heard of Kierkegaard, but had not read any of them because he was basically at that point out, unknown outside of Copenhagen. Uh, but that's a great tragedy because I, I just, you know, Nietzsche was yes, he was a strident critic of of Christianity as he saw it practiced in Europe in the late 19th century, but so was Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, though, is, you know, he's a Christian. He's a believer, passionately committed to Jesus. But he could be every bit the polemicist mm -hmm. on Christendom that Nietzsche was. I mean, just read his, he has a book entitled Attack, 
upon yeah. Christendom. It's 300 <laughs> blistering pages full of sarcasm. And uh, he, he is utterly put out by uh, a comfortable bourgeois Christianity that is just yeah. a little bit of an accoutrement to, uh, you know, Western society's values. And you know he's calling for a rigorous Christianity, from one that is one that has deep faith, one that calls for real sacrifice. And so, I would have loved to see an engagement between these two thinkers that are remarkably alike. Anybody that studied philosophy knows mm-hmm. you put those two together. Even though they didn't influence one another, they really are saying many of the same things. But the, but they diverge in that, as you said at the beginning of this question where Nietzsche believed that Christendom was completely empty and void of any truth, Kierkegaard believed that actually at the center of all this, there was the living word of God who is Christ. And that what we can do is hold on to Jesus and arrive at a more pure faith. And so that's what I want to say. Yeah, there's a lot to deconstruct. There's a lot to get rid of. There's a lot of a, you know, compromised, nationalized uh, faith that needs to be, say, deconstructed. Amen. But hold on to Jesus. Okay, I went too long. Yeah. You got me You got me excited. Because I don't meet too many people that That's actually great. like the, the Nietzsche and Kierkegaard stuff. And so, I, thought it, so, I thought it was beautiful. I thought you did so a great job with that. When I find someone that. that actually likes it, yeah. I go off on it. No, I, I loved it. I loved it. Well, I, I do want to skip over some of it because I have so many questions, Brian. I could keep you forever. But you, a little bit further into the book, you, you actually move into this the the beautiful, the importance of just looking at Christ as the center and the ultimate yeah. truth. In fact, on page 59, you say, we should not claim that Christianity is the ultimate truth. Rather, Christianity claims that Jesus, Christ, is the ultimate truth. Now, I, I can imagine, you know, some hear that and the pushback on that is, wait a minute, you're, are you discounting the Bible, etc.? So can you speak a little bit, what do you mean by... Christianity yeah. is not our ultimate truth, but Christ is, and, and the distinction there between well, those two. Th- this is, this is I know that's a big question, but... Uh, it is, yeah. and, and I'm probably going to maybe throw in a little bit more than what's in the book, because I didn't want to get too off the track I was on in the book. But Yeah, yeah. So it's in the context of this larger argument where I'm pushing back on the uh, popular axiom that Christianity is not a religion which is well-intended and entirely misinformed. Of course Christianity is a religion. I mean, if it's not a religion, what is it? Well, well, it's a a relationship. Okay, the goal of the Christian religion is to produce a relationship with the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fine. But, But that which we call Christianity is a religion. If you don't call it a religion, what do you have to call it? Well, you, what ends up happening is you say, well, no, it's just, it's just the truth. Well, that's a problematic statement. Uh, Christians should not claim that Christianity is the truth. Christianity should claim that Christianity is a religion of practices and beliefs that grew up around the supreme revelation that God's truth came into the world, born as a baby, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. We're in Advent here. i got to do some Christmas riffing. And that Jesus Christ (laughs) is the truth of God. And then there is this religion that grows up in response to it. Here's the thing. When Christians say Christianity is not 
of religion. This is new. This is no nobody was saying this 200 years ago, 500 years, 1000 years ago, all of that. I mean, somebody would say, "Well, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion." No, he had his own religion. He was a thoroughly religious man. Jesus lived an entire life of a practicing religion. He's an observant Jew who also is God incarnate. And the effect of the logos of God becoming human, entering our world through death, burial, resurrection, uh, is so profound that a religion is going to grow up around it. And we call that Christianity. But where does well, Christianity is not where does that come? It's a response to Voltaire and all and Nietzsche and all of those kind of critics, because we've become intimidated by Voltaire, Nietzsche. Etc. And so we want to try to dodge it by saying, well, well, because they say you know, religion is the worst thing that ever happened. We say, well, this isn't a religion. Well, no, it is a religion. Um, just a comment. This is a line that's not in the book either. Rene Girard, though, he has this pithy line that I just love. He says, Voltaire and his successors only criticize Christianity with Christianity, <laughs> which, yeah. which is really true. No yep. one actually attacks Jesus, all right? What people do yeah. is they attack Christianity. Okay, that's easy yep. enough. I think we could all do that. Uh, but you understand what, if you will look at their arguments, basically they attack Christianity for its moral failings using a moral <laughs> philosophy that they, whether they realize it or not, they inherited from Christianity. Yep. So in exactly effect... Right. Um, Christianity's cultured despisers are really criticizing Christianity for not being Christian enough, to which I think we should say, yeah. amen, pray for us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, um, yeah, so, on, so on wait, let, let, you, let me, let me, let me yeah, sure, sure. put the bow on this to show why this is in this book. So you can, Christianity is capable of change. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't have to claim to be unchanging and eternal. Jesus is the eternal word of God, unchanging, but not Christianity. Uh, and then people also then make the mistake, especially in the, especially in the Protestant world. This isn't an Orthodox or Catholic phenomenon, but it's a Protestant phenomenon. We're very often Christianity and the Bible get conflated into the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, you know, this, this, here, I got my Bible here. This, this is, this is, Christianity. No, this is our canonical text. If, if, and then the pressure becomes to make the Bible perfect because Christianity is the truth. Christianity and the Bible are essentially synonymous. And then we, we, have to, we have to fight every, we have to fight for every single verse to be literally true. Right. And this creates a problem. Here's the, maybe the best example. In neither Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, is Slavery as an institution condemned as evil. The mm -hmm. Bible in both Testaments operates from the assumption that it's just an inevitable institution. The Bible itself does not seem to have an imagination of a world without slavery. It just doesn't. Now, if I were trying to defend the Bible, that's not really my motive, but if I were to try to defend the Bible in those passages, I would say, well, Within its own time, it is actually trying to mitigate the suffering of slavery in general. Um, but it's true. The Bible doesn't have a vision for the abolition of slavery. Now, I would, I would also say that some of what Paul and, of course, what Christ taught can put you on a trajectory to get there, but that's just my point, that 
it, it doesn't matter that the Bible doesn't condemn slavery as an institution. The living, growing, developing religion that is Christianity is capable over time of producing entire limbs and boughs of abolition. So Christianity yeah. is a living religion rooted in the soil of Scripture. It cannot be removed from the soil of Scripture. It must stay rooted there or it will die. But it's not, it's not the same as the soil. Yeah. So you have the soil, which is the, the canonical scriptural text, but then you have this faith that is living and growing and developing and capable yep. of change. And you see that you see that even within the text itself. So you have Gentiles are suddenly welcomed into the Jewish body of Messiah as Gentiles. This is creating a problem. Uh, and they have this council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, and they say, well, we've got to have some minimum things here. And one of them is, don't eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Okay, this is a letter to the Gentile believers from the Council of Jerusalem. Don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. Well, that's, you know, you can practice that in Jerusalem pretty easy. You get out into the Gentile world of Corinth and Athens and wherever, and that becomes a real problem because... All the meat is sacrificed to it. I mean, that's, the, <laughs> that's right. The butcher shop is right next to the pagan temple where where the cattle or the sheep or whatever are sacrificed to this. And then and the butcher gets the meat. So it's all. And so Paul has to be much more nuanced and say, well, of course, you actually can eat meat sacrificed. Just, just don't. Yep. If people are weak in faith, don't, don't provoke them, don't flaunt that. But of course you can eat. So Acts 15 says you can't eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Paul's business say, well, yeah, you can actually. You have to be careful, yeah. but yeah, you can. So you see, that's you see Christianity developing even within the text of the Bible. Yeah, it's great. And so it's that's why we don't say it's ultimate truth. It's it's right. a response to the truth who is Christ. Yeah, and any any time that that is um, even just slightly mentioned or hinted at, I. Some of the pushback people say, well, you wouldn't even know anything about Jesus had it not been for the Bible. So, you know, everything rises basically and falls on, on the Bible. And yet I, I noticed this <laughs> this this part you, you put on page 92 where you say the knowledge that Jesus is God comes to us by witness and is apprehended by revelation. It cannot be otherwise. And I, I love how you, you really emphasize the experiential side. Now, you certainly don't say that all experiences, right. you know, are, are, are from God. But you really emphasize the importance of having your own experience with Christ, that it's not all resting on the Bible as the ultimate foundation. Would you, can you, am yeah, I off this, on this that? This approach or can you to the Bible is, is very new. It is thoroughly modern. The idea that we have to view the Bible as some sort of historically perfect, scientifically accurate mm -hmm. text. What happens is, is you have uh, Rene Descartes. He's a believing Catholic. He's not out to harm Christian faith. In fact, he mm -hmm. wants to try to prove the existence of God, which is a foolish thing, but that's part of what he's trying to do. He's a brilliant mind. He's a great philosopher. But he understands that so much is predicated upon tradition, and he doesn't want to do that. He says, I, I, I want to find what is indubitable, what cannot be doubted. I want to find epistemological bedrock. And he thinks, okay, I'm going to go about my project by doubting everything I can doubt and find if there's something that I can't doubt. And he's thinking for weeks, and he goes, I, I can doubt everything. Everything can be doubted. And then one day it hits him. Well, I'm thinking, 
And when I'm doubting, at least I'm thinking, oh, I think, therefore I am. Cogito, ergo, soon. One of the most famous axioms in philosophy. Now, that has been much critiqued with more modern philosophy, and, and it's probably it's not near as true as, as, as Descartes imagined. But what happened was, with cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, what happens is, is that the lone individual becomes the sole arbiter of truth up inside their head, and everything now is subject to empirical verification. That is, that if you cannot verify it, through empiricism, that is through sense knowledge, through some sort of application of the five physical senses in one way or another, telescopes and microscopes, etc., then we won't regard it as incontrovertible or true or, or, or we can't build our life upon it. And, to, and this, become, this becomes the foundation for modernity and for empiricism, and for scientism. I'm no, I'm no opponent of science. I don't know of any scientific theory that's any threat to my Christian faith. I'm fine with it. That whole trajectory is great for inventing iPhones and putting a man on the moon and everything else. Uh, but here's my one pushback. What empiricism says, uh, every, the, the, the Everything within the phenomenon of being can ultimately be accounted for through the five physical senses, through empiricism. I want to say, no. That's, that's a massive assumption. No. You, then you can't even account for love. And so a, a real hardcore materialist, logical positivist, has to reduce love to hormones and chemical response and evolutionary advantage that it provides. Well, what a terrible world to live in. Yeah, uh, I right. think most of us know that, yeah, you can say those things about love, that there's pheromones and chemical responses and hormones, and it's advantageous at times for the survival of the species, etc. But you don't, you don't write a billion love songs because yeah. of hormones. Um, th- this, most of us know that there's something deeper there that we can't prove and yet we experience it. And it's what we know through, colloquially, we say the heart, the heart or the spirit. And we've been conditioned in modernity to be afraid to say that because we've been told, no, you have to stay upside in, up, upstairs inside your head. You have to be able to, through reason, defend every claim you make. And what I'm just saying is, well, I'm saying it, I mean, Descartes, Contemporary and intellectual equal, Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest mathematical minds in history, certainly no opponent to reason. I mean, he's a, you know, one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. And yet he'd had his, he's had his profound spiritual experience that he called his night of fire. And Blaise Pascal gives us the famous axiom, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. And... God ultimately reveals himself to us through the Spirit, through revelation, to our heart. This cannot be verified empirically. It cannot be proven, but it is where we experience God. And I'm inviting people to once again found their faith where it always belonged on the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the revelation given to you by the Spirit of God. I'm inviting people to come up, come down out of the attic, 
of their head. I mean, you can go up into your head and do a lot of stuff. But if you want to experience God, that's not where you'll find him. You come down yeah. out of the attic up there with all your dusty National Geographic magazines. <laughs> yeah. And come down. I'm so the- glad. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you put that, this 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 whole entire, not all of it, but a lot of that in into this book. It, it was very warming, and uh, I found it just... Uh, just enlightening and encouraging. I know in my own life, my grandmother was that that person for me. I, you know, I've always I lived in my head a lot as a child and grew up in church. And on Enneagram, I'm a, I'm a five, so I'm an investigator and a reader and a researcher and all these things. And I remember going through middle school, high school, you know, just having a lot of questions and you know, not really sure what I believed and if I should or that. But I remember spending. I I was an only child, uh, didn't have a father in my life. My grandfather passed away when I was a small child, so I spent a lot of time with my grandmother on the weekends, and she just had this passion, you know, for God and had this passion mm. for Jesus. Not formally educated, but read her Bible every day, spent time in prayer every day, and anytime I got with her, she just deposited into me, you know, she always called me Scotty, you know, Scotty, I was in prayer this morning, and, mm. and this is what I think you know. I need to tell you, yeah. or let me show you what I see from the Bible. And God was so real to her, and she had such passion and such emotion when she talked about him. That carried me through a lot of the things I couldn't put together in my head, but I knew that there was something burning inside of her and something that had been with her for 60 years of her life or more when she gave her life to Christ as a, as a, as a young adult. And she passed away when she was almost 94 and just remained this constant presence in my life and always was praying for me and always encouraging me. That passion she had was able to take over, or I should say, kind of, you know, keep me afloat when I yeah. just wasn't sure if my head was putting it all together. So I just love that that part of your of your book and the the importance of the experiential and the contemplation and and all these different things. In fact, I, I want to, if I can, kind of end on this. I know your time is very valuable, and I've kept you a long time. But you you say you say this on 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 page one seventeen, and I just I remember when I read this, I I immediately typed it out and sent it to a friend of mine, and I said I encouraged him with this. You, you say if you honestly want to encounter Jesus, here's what I recommend. Read the Gospels on your knees for six months, asking Jesus before each chapter to reveal himself to you. Seriously, try it. Don't be surprised if you eventually find yourself inside the cage face to face with the Lion of Judah. Then you'll have to decide what to do with your life now that you've gone through the wardrobe, entered Narnia, and encountered the real Aslan. And I love that. (laughs) I love that. That is just genuine, encouraging contemplation, experiencing Christ for yourself not leaning on anyone else's faith, making it your own. I mean, you've dealt with some of the the intellectual issues and some of the questions and gave this, you know, sense of context, but you you begin to wrap it up by just saying, you yourself, go ahead, yeah. you know, test it, try it, get on your knees, r- read the gospels and just say, God, speak to me. And I just think that's 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 beautiful, Brian. Thank you, Scott. That's yeah. I'm writing from my own experience. I mean, I, I literally did that. I, for six months, read the Gospel of John just repeatedly on my knees and seeking to encounter Christ. And, um, you know, I, I try to think. I try to be articulate. I try to be rational yep. when I write. But almost everything I write that's worth writing, it, it comes through that process, but that isn't where it came from originally. It originally came from some yeah. sort of mystical encounter with Christ. Yeah. 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 
That's great. Well, you, you, you did a great job, Brian. Um, you know, I've said that over and again, but it, it's a wonderful book. I'm highly encouraging people to read it. Uh, if they, if people want to follow you, I mean, I know you're, you're present everywhere on Facebook and, and, and different places. Uh, Ryanzon.com is that the best place for people yeah, to kind of well, go I mean, and find out what's going they, on or that was, that's my blog site, but you know, the podcast is killing okay. the blog. <laughs> oh yeah. So, yeah. True. So, true. Yeah. So, you know, but you know, you'll find me. Brian yeah, Zahn is an unusual name, and you'll find me <laughs> on right. Facebook. You're probably not going to find another Brian Zahn and follow no, the wrong I, person. I haven't so. <laughs> yet, and so I, yeah. I, I would be surprised. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very great. active on Twitter, a little bit on Instagram. I put stuff occasionally on Facebook. You know, well, if you just I Google have so my many name, things you'll I find can... all the places I'm yeah, that's present. Right. Yeah. And including including I have so many... some of the YouTubes where people are telling you that I'm heretic, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Those are some interesting videos as well. Uh, but uh, you have so many books out there and, and your heart is out there in, in, in a lot of different places. And, you know, there's so many. I hope, hope to have you back another time because I'd love to talk yes, to you please. about your, your, prayer, your prayer school. And I'd love to talk to you about a variety of different things. I love the first book I read of yours was A Farewell to Mars, and it really opened my eyes up to the whole, you know, the violence. And, and I never had thought through those things. And you really exposed me to that. And so anyway, anyway, it's just uh, really, really good stuff. So Brian, thank you for your time. Uh, I know you've got a lot going on, but you were so kind and generous to, to sit here and talk and, and teach us. So uh, thank you so much uh, for that.